us, is this the lunch loop? If so, um, we wish to cancel. Um, we do not wish to belong to that or to pay this anymore. Thank you. Hey everybody, welcome to the Lumloop Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the intersection of markets, trading, and life. And in a little bit, I'm going to talk about the role of ego when it comes to trading and investing, I guess. But right now, I have to let you know that I am recording this from an undisclosed location somewhere in Hollywood. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. I was thinking back the other day on my high school years. I don't really have any teachers or classes that stand out for me during that time. I have lots of other memories about high school. It was great, but in terms of individual classes and teachers, not not much jumps out except for one. It was my sophomore year and I had honors English with Mr. Gruner. Now, the reason that class has a special spot in my mind. It's twofold. Number one, at the beginning of the year, when you get to class, it's always exciting to see who's going to be in your class. And you wait and you see people walk in. Oh, there's my friend here. There's this person there. So I got to that class early and I saw a parade of cheerleaders come into the class. Almost every one of the cheerleaders ended up being in that class. And I remember thinking at the time, because I had no game, I mean, God forbid I got divorced now, I would have minor game, but back then I had no game when it came to the fairer sex. And I'm sure somewhere in my immature mind, I was like, I've got a whole year here with most of the cheerleading squad. And it's inevitable that one or more of them will fall in love with me and I will get a girlfriend. Well, you know how the first week of the new school year, people are still moving around, classes are fluid, people kind of figure out in the first one to three days if they should really be in a class or not? Well, that's exactly what happened in Mr. Gruner's class. The first day, three of the cheerleaders figured out, ah, they shouldn't be in here. Second day, five more figured it out. And by the third day, all the cheerleaders were gone. So suffice to say, I did not find a girlfriend out of that class. The second reason I remember that class is because of Mr. Gruner and what he taught us. Mr. Gruner was a weird guy. He's a rather short guy, very compact. He wore dark glasses in class. And in a reference to Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which I talked about last week, he was so tight in the way he walked and talked and expressed himself that You put a lump of coal up his ass, in two weeks you would get a diamond. So it took me by surprise when on the first day he went through the syllabus and said, we're going to be studying the romantic poets for the first half of the year. I thought, first of all, that's a really weird juxtaposition, Mr. Gruner and the romantic poets. And second of all, I was like, really? This is going to be so painful because the 15-year-old Brian Lund Poetry was not cool. That, that, that Brian Lund did not want to learn about poetry. And the idea of sitting there for half a year learning about the romantic poets was not very exciting. 
But when Mr. Gruner started teaching the Romantic Poets, everything changed. First of all, he changed. He all of a sudden became more soft in his posture. He started to emote more. He almost changed totally and physically from that very rigid person into this almost like a, like a beat poet. He obviously loved the Romantic Poets, and we learned about Shelley and Keats and Wordsworth and Blake and all of them. And the other thing that was kind of strange is I started to like it. It was a weird feeling. I'm like, I shouldn't like poetry. You know, poetry is for, well, you know who poetry, you know who we thought poetry was for back then. But I really enjoyed it. And I found myself reading poetry outside of class, which I think back on it, it was bizarre. But it engendered a lifelong love of poetry in me. In fact, when I go to use bookstores these days, one of the first things I do is I go to the poetry section. And I like to find anthologies or very small uh, poetry books. I like bigger ones too, but I like the type that you can take with you so that if you're waiting to pick up your kids, you can flip through them. Or if you're in the corner of a really nice oak bar and you're enjoying a, a an adult beverage, you can read a little poetry. And I've learned about all sorts of different poets over the years. I'm a, a fan of Ted Hughes. I'm a fan of Jim Harrison. And I've become a fan of a poet named Phil Blarkin. Now, Phil Blarkin was the poet laureate, or laureate, however you say it, for England for a number of years back in, I think, the 60s. And he's a very well-known poet. And um, I was going through a book of his the other day, and I came across this one poem that really made me think about my kids and the way I'm raising my kids. And I had read this poem a long time ago. I was familiar with it, but I don't think I've read it since I had kids, or at least in a long time since I had kids. And it's called, This Be the Verse. They fuck you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. After reading that, it reminded me of my prime directive as a parent and that I should probably check in on that prime directive. My goal as a parent has been to leave my kids with the least amount of my issues, my insecurities, my neuroses, my maladaptions, as possible. I do not want to carry those on to the next generation. But I worry that I may have misparented by omission. And most of that is centered around not pushing my kids. For example, my daughter wanted to learn the piano when she was seven. And we said, okay, we'll get you piano lessons, but you have to commit to them for a year. And if you don't like it after a year, then you can stop. But you have to, you know, you can't just take a couple weeks and move on. So she took them for a year. And she was pretty good at it, but she didn't like it. And we said, sorry, you have to do it. You have to go the full year. And the exact day that a year was up, she said, okay, I'm done. I don't want to do anymore. And we said, okay, that was our deal. You gave it a shot. You're not into it. 
And then five years later, she just threw out some, at some point, like, ah, I should have, I, I wish I played piano now. I, I should have, I should have stuck with it. And of course, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, God damn, did I mess up here? Should I have pushed her more to do piano? I want my kids to take Taekwondo. So my daughter started Taekwondo at seven, eight, nine, somewhere around there. My son started around the same age. My daughter did five years of Taekwondo. My son did three years of Taekwondo. She was really good at it, and he was getting good at it too. Then we ran into COVID. Then it became really tough. They couldn't do in-person anymore. They tried to do these Zoom classes, which were really bizarre. But some people stuck with it. And I just said, you know what? Let's not worry about this. COVID will be over you know, after a few weeks or a couple months, then we'll get back to it. Well, it took two years for them to get back to in-person. And guess what? My kids didn't want to go. My daughter went from being 14 to 16. I mean, she was right in the middle of those moody teenage girl years. Didn't want to do it, so I didn't push it. And I think one of the areas I'm most worried about is I didn't push my kids into sports. Now, I was an okay sports kid. I played baseball. I played soccer. Then when I got to high school, I played football. I was okay in in baseball. I was pretty damn good in soccer. I sucked in football. I hated football. But being in those sports, number one, it's social, but it's also, you know, it also teaches you about competition and it teaches resiliency. You get knocked down, you get back up. So I haven't pushed my kids into sports. And I think the reason I haven't done that is because I don't want to be that sports parent. Like, I don't want to do the work to be involved in the sports. They're not in it. Like, if, if my son was like, I really want to do soccer, or my daughter was, I really want to do volleyball, I'd be, okay, cool. I'd encourage him and I'd be there. But them not putting it forward gives me an excuse to say, nah, let's not do it. Because honestly, I'm not a social person. I'm not a people person. I've got that gear. I can go into it if I need to. I go to an event, people go, oh, you're so outgoing. What they don't realize is like, I just can't wait to get home and read a book. So if I had my druthers, as old men say, I would just be at home all the time or around a small group of friends and family. And that's kind of the parenting by omission. I've I've let my my proclivity for being by myself or or away from the social scene cause them to not to be that way themselves, but to reinforce that. So for example, they both live on their computers. I mean, we tell them every now and then, hey, we have to go do stuff here. And they're cool about it. Like they go hiking with us. We do activities as a family, never complain. It's not a big issue. But if they had their choice, they'd be on their devices. Now there's a different side to that. Obviously we didn't have devices growing up. Um, It's a different world. For example, my daughter has friends, and I'm putting that in air quotes, but I really shouldn't because these are long-term relationships. They're deep relationships. As someone who has benefited from relationships on Twitter and social media, I should understand this. So I guess I shouldn't do the air quotes, but she has friends from all across the country. She even has friends in different countries, but she doesn't have a lot of in-person friends. She's got a few friends, you know, 
that she'll go over to their house, or whatever. But she's not really that social butterfly. And I guess I shouldn't say social butterfly, but I have friends who have kids that are always busy, always doing activities. And I worry that my kids aren't because I haven't pushed them. My son, you know, he's on the spectrum a little bit, so that factors into it. But he loves being online. He loves the online world. And again, he's got lots of friends there and he, he's fine at school, but he's not going to do sleepovers. He's not, he doesn't want to go play sports with a team. If they had their choice, they'd just be at home on their devices. So that bothers me. All right, so let's, let's talk about Hollywood. <laughs> Why am I in Hollywood? Good question. I hate everything about L.A. My, one of my goals in life is to avoid going to L.A. Now, having said that, there are places in L.A. I hate more and places that I hate less. For example, Malibu, not so bad. I actually like Malibu. Long drive, but it's beautiful. That's part of L.A. I'm down with. Hollywood is the exact opposite. Like if there's one place that I wouldn't want to be in L.A., it is Hollywood. So what the fuck am I doing in Hollywood on a Friday night? On a Friday night when I should be doing the Lund Loop? Well, I'll tell you. About three weeks ago, my daughter says, hey, can I go to Candace's birthday party? Now, Candace is a friend of hers from L.A. And we'd met Candace in person a couple times. Uh, I've talked to her dad. We arranged to have the girls meet in person at uh, Barnes & Noble that was like halfway between our house. And we said, you guys, you know, have fun for a few hours. We'll, dads will go do our stuff. So I've met her. She's great. I met the father. They're really good friends. But Candace lives up in L.A. And where is her birthday party going to be at? It's going to be at Universal Studios Hollywood. Now, immediately I'm like, okay, when is it? Oh, it's Friday the 7th. And the first thing I'm thinking is, I've got to do the Lund Loop. I do not want to fight Friday. Tra like, there's no worse traffic in Southern California than going from my house to Universal Studios at 4 o'clock on a Friday. It just does not get worse than that. So I don't want to fight that. Also, what the hell do I do in Hollywood for five hours? She's going to be there from six o'clock. I, I got to go back and pick her up at 11. What am I going to do in Hollywood for five hours on a Friday night? So immediately I'm thinking, ah, I really don't want to do this. And maybe I can just, you know, somehow encourage her but that's not how I am. Like, I'm not going to put my, you know, my issues ahead of hers. And then that part of me kicked in that, that Philip Larkin, mom and dad, fuck you up part. And I said, you know what? No, you got to go up to Hollywood. You got to take her up there. She's going to meet up with her friend and, and six other friends, and they're going to have a great social time and she's going to interact. And it's different than just sitting in front of her computer. And you have to encourage this. You have to put your own issues aside and fucking parent like you should so i dropped her off i'm sitting here recording this podcast in my car uh i think i'm gonna hit a bookstore <laughs> uh, i don't know i'll figure something else out to do but uh i just uh i didn't want to I didn't want to make a mistake. I guess that's the biggest thing is I've, I've, I think I'm a good dad. I think I'm a good parent. 
I think my kids feel loved. They feel supported. They feel encouraged. Um, you know, we push them to be individuals, to be kind, critical thinking members of the uh, of society. Um, but there's always those, you know, those insecurities. Did I? Am I not doing enough? Am I making a mistake? If I don't do this now, will it? Will you know? It affect them later. So I pushed through all that and. I'm stuck in Hollywood on a Friday night. Uh, is this the lunch loop? Earlier this week, Anthony Crudelli, who runs a, uh, a podcast and a video, I don't know if it's the same thing. Is that a, is that a vlogcast? I, I'm always confused about that. I thought podcast was just audio, video was different. Either way, it was a video podcast that I was on with Joe Fami and some other guys. And one of the questions, he took questions from the audience, and one of the questions was about how do you find what works for you? I think it was asked by somebody that's obviously struggling with their trading. This is the answer that I gave. So I'm going to give an answer that people are probably going to think is funny, but it's a serious answer. And I tell this to any uh, trader that's struggling, new, old, whatever, go to therapy, okay? (laughs) And and I'm telling you. It is funny. There's some, there, it, it's funny and true. There's something about the market and the dynamics of the market that are able to zero in on your biggest insecurities and you don't realize it. And your trading may have something to do with the fact that you didn't get enough acknowledgement from your parents. And you're trying to overcome that by proving to the market that you're smarter. And uh, look, therapy in general is just good for people. Uh, today, you can do it over Zoom. But I think... The other thing about going to therapy is that you get a third party, an, uninter- an uninterested third party who will call you out on your bullshit, right? So yeah. much of what we try to do in our daily lives and the markets try to you know, convince ourselves that we're doing this right or we're doing that right. And you really need someone to say, nah, that's not working. So I would say, you know, get some positive feedback from someone uh, and therapy, I think is one of the best ways to do it. Now, I've talked about therapy in the past and how much of a game changer I think it is because the whole purpose of therapy is to identify traits, characteristics that you may not even know you have that are seeping into your trading and, of course, into your real life. And so I just want to talk about one of those traits that we probably all suffer for, from in some way or another. I know I I still do, and I did a lot. Like So if, if we're doing a rating scale here and 10 is the worst that I ever suffered from this and zero is the best. I'm probably at a five, six, (laughs) but maybe was it a 10. And of course, what I'm talking about is ego. Now the the dictionary definition of ego is a person's sense of self-esteem or self-importance. But for the purposes of this discussion, ego can just mean anything that makes you pig-headed or, or stubborn or unable to take the actions that you know deep down that you really should take. My source of ego, at least one of the sources of my ego, comes from this sense that I, I'm so smart. And this actually goes way back to second grade. Back in second grade, which would have been like 19, I don't know, 70 something. There was a program in California called MGM. 
MGM stood for Mentally Gifted Miners. And it was this new approach in the California educational system where they were trying to identify kids that they thought were, I guess, a little bit brighter, a little bit more exceptional, I don't know, and and create a curriculum that uh, spoke to them. Because a lot of these kids just would get bored in school because they already knew what was being taught. They weren't being challenged. They weren't being lifted up to a, a to you know, a new level, a different level of education. So they started this program and it involved testing kids. So they would take us into the principal's office and give us this test. They didn't tell us what it was about. I remember very few things about the test. I remember, I remember two questions from the test. One I can't even remember anymore. It had to do with a lion. I think maybe it was something, maybe an Aesop's uh, fable. I do remember one of the questions though, and it was who wrote Romeo and Juliet? And I answered it correctly. I said, Shakespeare, second grade. What a genius. I don't even know how I knew that. Long story short, they said, hey, you could be in the MGM program. My parents, for one reason or another, didn't enter me into the program because uh, I think it had to do with we had to be bused somewhere else and just didn't work. But they, you know, I knew, hey, I passed. I could be in this MGM program. MGM has now turned into GATE what is gifted and talented education. And these days, at least in California, it's bad to be in GATE because now apparently these programs are a symbolism or symbolic of elitism in our society and whatever. Don't even get me started on that. That's a whole different podcast in a whole different newsletter. The point is I knew about this when I was in second grade and I thought, oh my God, I'm so fucking smart. I am so smart. And I was pretty smart for second grade. I was a little ahead of everybody else when... They were doing, you know, subtraction in addition. I was doing um, uh, multiplication and division. And that went to about fourth or fifth grade. And then all of a sudden, everyone started catching up with me. And then at sixth grade, people started surpassing me. And the reason they started surpassing me is I had this, this ingrained belief that I was smart. And because I was smart, it came naturally. I didn't have to try. Why should I have to study? I know this stuff. I'm just organically smart. And on some level, that percolated through my, you know, my psyche uh, into my adult life, which found its way into my trading. How, you might ask? Well, let me tell you. The first way was that I had an opinion on the market. I had an opinion on what this stock would do, on what that stock would do, and I didn't change my opinion. When all the data and information went against my opinion, what did I do? I dug in, which meant I got bigger, got more money at risk. And I used to say in my regular life, this is so, it's so douche chill inducing for me to even say this, but I used to say in my regular life, um, all my opinions are right. Otherwise, why would I have them? I mean, who would knowingly hold a wrong opinion? That's how much I thought my opinions were right. And it really cost me in the stock market. Second way that ego came into play is something I like to call walking away. You ever see, uh, you ever see in, I don't know if you watch UFC or even boxing, or I guess you could see it in sports. They call the walk-off, right? The walk-off home run, like it hits it. and meh. There's this thing called the walk-off knockout in UFC where they're fighting and then the guy just hits the guy and he goes down so hard that he doesn't even have to follow up. So he just turns around, he turns his back and he walks away because he knows that the ref is going to call the fight. 
Well, I used to do this thing called the walk away when I would place a trade because I was so right that my trade was going to work out. I would place the trade and then I wouldn't pay attention to it. I would either take it off my screen or I'd, you know, go to the beach or I, I'd do something. I wouldn't put a stop in because I was a fucking egotistical a-hole and I'd think it's going to work out, right? And then, of course, when it didn't work out, well, the opinion thing, the ego opinion thing that we just talked about would kick in and I would dig a hole even deeper. All right, those were pretty easy to identify. It doesn't mean that I stopped doing them, uh, you know, sooner than I should have, but those were real easy ones. Now, the ones that are harder to uh, identify, revenge trading, big revenge trader, especially this type of revenge trading. So you take a trade, stock moves in your direction, you put a stop in, it comes right back down, it tags that stop, and then turns around and rallies. Oh my God, that was my kryptonite. If that ever happened to me, I would go roaring back into the trade, sometimes one, two, three times bigger to get back at the market, to get back at that stock. And what I should have really been doing is saying, hey, why is, why is it that the stocks are always coming down hitting my stop and then rallying. Maybe I should work on my stop placement, Brian. What do you think about that idea? No, no, I had to get back at the, the market and get back at those stocks because, you know, they had done me wrong. Probably the um, the hardest one to identify, and I think it's it's it was hard to identify because it was so uh, universal, it became so much a part of my mindset, was the concept that I should be able to trade everything. I like being a trader. I like when people say, what do you do? And I say, I trade the stock market. But I also liked it because I was cocky about it. And so I really bought into the trader myth. And the trader myth is, if you can chart it, you can trade it. I mean, that's a pure trader. It shouldn't matter, but it doesn't matter if you're trading rice or if you're trading Bitcoin, if you're trading Apple, right? It's all charts, somewhat volume, price action. And I used to buy into that. And I used to say, yeah, I'll trade everything. And I did. I traded a lot of stuff. I also used to say that I'll trade short as easy as I'll trade long. In fact, I remember after 9-11, I actually wrote a piece that said, I'm shorting and you should short too. And you know why? Because it is the most American thing to do. The most capitalist thing to do is to make money from free markets, whether that's going long or going short. Now, that may or may not have been correct at the time based upon price action. But that attitude, that cocksure, egotistical, my opinion is right way of looking at it was so wrong. So trying to trade everything uh didn't work out for me. And so as I, as I roll through the history of my, uh, my uh, trading career, I can think about times when I fought the market, fought instruments, uh, because I thought I should be able to trade them instead of just letting them go. Individual stocks. There was a stock called ICE, Intercontinental Exchange. I was convinced I could learn how to trade that stock. I could master that stock. And it just beat me up every time. There's another stock, Win, which I actually took a, a day trade on recently, but that one's always been bad for me. There's certainly um, a lot of instruments that I haven't been as good at. 
complex options, uh, commodities. Um, you know, most of the futures I scalp in Q, but I got no business trading oil futures or uh, gold. As I learned and as I got a little bit more in touch with my ego, I started getting rid of those things and saying, you know, who gives a shit if I can trade everything or what I trade? What is the purpose of trading? Like, really, what's the purpose? The purpose is to make money and hopefully to make money to have a better quality of life. And not only was I not making money by trading everything or trying to trade everything, but my quality of life was horrible because I felt like I had to be on at all times and I had to be focused in all these different areas at all times. It was so stupid, so egotistical. And one of the, the best things that ever happened to me was when I figured out, oh, you know what? Stocks and different instruments and even different sectors and asset classes, they have their own personalities. They really do. There's some stocks that I really have a feel for how they trade. That doesn't mean I can master them or that I can uh, predict what they're going to do, but I'm more comfortable with what they're doing. Uh, they're liquid. They don't gap. Uh, they... You know, the broader a stock or an instrument is followed, I think the less uh, unexpected moves you have. You know, people talk about volatility. Uh, traders like volatility. Do they? Do they really? I mean, we need up and down movement, but pretty much every market I've been in in 35 years has had decent up and down movement. Those volatile markets, that's like really tough. I don't think you should necessarily trade more in a volatile market. I think you should trade less in a volatile market. And so the more familiar I am with the way something moves, just the more comfort I have in trading it. So the question is, what do you do if you've got an ego and it's interfering in your trading? Well, the first thing is identifying it. That's number one, because by its mechanics, your ego wants to hide itself from self-revelation. It doesn't want to let you know that it's there. That's what ego is all about. It's about obfuscating and not getting to the core of things. Uh, number two is, I think, therapy. I definitely think therapy is good. Number three, get some feedback some, from friends and family. Um, I think really, though, being mindful and just paying attention to what's happening while it's happening is a really good way to diffuse um, ego. Like I said, I'm about a four to five. Sometimes I'll get to a six on ego. At least I know I'm doing it um, and I'm not as bad as I used to be. But that's really the key. It's the key to everything in trading is being aware at the moment and in real time of the self-destructive behavior that you're doing. Look, losing money in the stock market sucks. But what sucks even more is losing money in the stock market because in second grade, you knew who wrote Romeo and Juliet. Um, I would like to repeat that want to be canceled from the Lund Loop, whatever you've got me on. Um, if you wish to call and explain what it is, uh, actually... Uh, forget that. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode. If you got any questions, hit me up at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at thelunloop.com. I'll see you next time. Bye.